You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's weekend, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Mompos, Bolivar. That's five and a half hours south from Cartagena. Colombia's Caribbean coast. That's right. I'm overlooking the Magdalena River right now. And this is episode 398 of the Columbia Calling podcast. We're closing in on that significant number, but still have yet to find the appropriate person for episode 400. But anyway, this episode, our very special guest this week is Alexander Diamond, and he's in Briseño, Antioquia. He's a student, a doctoral student at the University of Texas in Austin, but originally from Portland, Oregon. And he's going to tell us about some of the issues affecting what is commonly known or has been referred to as the Peace Laboratory of Briseño. So it was set up as a platform or a master plan for the peace accords uh, that were signed with the FARC between the government of Juan Manuel Santos and the FARC in 2016. It was going to be one of, well, it was heralded as one of those sort of landmark places to be studied. And of course, five years on, we know that things have altered and things have changed. Uh, and of course, uh, Diamond is there. He's there. He's been there for 24 months investigating and studying for his doctoral thesis. So we'll be talking to him out there from Briseño, telling us about what is going on regarding the coca uh, cultivations and their substitution. Just across the river is the Ituango town, the town of Ituango, where the Hidro Ituango Dam is located. And of course, there have been so much uh, violence in the area, displacements, all sorts of armed groups running forth. Uh, so we'll hear about uh, that part of Colombia in Antioquia in segment three of this show. So thank you again for listening, and don't go away. I'm Emily Hart, and these are your top stories for the week of October the 11th, 2021. Shockwaves from the Pandora Papers' revelations continue to be felt in Colombia. Numerous current ministers and high-level politicians were implicated in the use of offshore tax havens, commonly used to avoid taxes and legal liability for business activities and assets. These include Lisandro Junco Rivera, director of Colombia's own tax authority, Marta Lucia Ramirez, Minister of Foreign Affairs, and Angela Maria Orozco, Minister for Transport. President Ivan Duque responded that having accounts abroad is not a crime, but a debate was called in Congress to demand explanations of the government's policy to prevent tax evasion. The Char clan, one of the most powerful families of Colombia's Caribbean region, was revealed as owner of 13 offshore companies. Members of that family hold posts in politics and business, with a conglomerate of companies within Colombia, including Olympica Supermarkets, which made more than a billion US dollars in 2020 alone. Family patriarch and former congressman Fuad Char, 10th richest man in Colombia, according to Forbes, appears as the owner of 10 offshore companies, registered in Panama and Delaware in the USA. Numerous offspring, siblings and Colombian holdings are listed as shareholders and beneficiaries. 
Four miners were killed in an army bombing of guerrilla group the ELN in Chocó. Between 13 and 17 years old, they died in the bombing of the camp of Commander Fabian, whose death was reported days later in a hospital in the city of Cali. The army did not deny that miners had been killed, but responded that the ELN were responsible for recruiting miners and placing them in war zones. This is a violation of international humanitarian law by the government armed forces. Think tank Indipaz has revealed the state and growth of paramilitary activity last year. There was activity by 22 narco-paramilitary structures in 291 of Colombia's 1,100 municipalities. This is an increase of 30 municipalities as compared to 2019. Groups appear to have used the COVID-19 pandemic to increase their territorial control. Many of these are successor groups to the AUC, United Self-Defence Forces of Colombia, demobilised in the early 2000s. These include the Clan del Golfo, also known as the AGC. It's by far the most dominant group and considered Colombia's largest drug trafficking organisation by the US government. Almost two-thirds of Colombia's municipalities saw some activity by paramilitary groups between 2008 and 2020. Nearly half of Colombia's unique vegetation, 45% of the country's 1,200 endemic trees and shrubs, are at risk of extinction, according to the Humboldt Institute. In addition, they report that only 8% of the dry forest that existed 50 years ago in the country remains, thanks to deforestation. These ecosystems are destroyed by economic activities such as cattle and mining. After the scandal of the missing advance on a huge contract for Wi-Fi in rural schools by the ICT ministry, former convict and lawyer Emilio Tapia is on trial. Tapia, known as the contracting czar, had already been convicted for the 2010 contracting carousel scandal in Bogotá. It was one of the biggest public contracting scandals of the last decade in Colombia, and an estimated one billion US dollars of public funds were embezzled. He had been released from prison for good behaviour, having served seven years of his 17-year sentence. A judge has now ruled that he must go to a maximum security prison for the duration of his trial over the Wi-Fi contract. Ratings agency Moody's has maintained Colombia's credit rating at BAA2. It has also improved its outlook on the country from negative to stable, saying government fiscal measures and post-pandemic recovery will stabilise its debt. Moody's decision comes months after two other major ratings agencies, Fitch Ratings and Stadden Poor's, downgraded their ratings for Colombia to junk. Colombia's coronavirus case numbers remain low. They are at around 1,500 new daily cases on average. More than half of the country has had one dose of vaccination. Over a third are now fully vaccinated. But controversy this week as the UK slashed its travel red list from 54 countries to seven. Colombia remained on the new list, along with numerous neighbours, requiring compulsory hotel quarantine on arrival at the traveller's own expense. This is reportedly due to the potential vaccine resistance of the new strain of COVID-19 prevalent in the region. Those were your top stories for the week. Thanks for listening. And we're back. This is segment three of episode 397 of the Columbia Colliant Podcast. I'm Richard McCall here in Bogota. My very special guest is Alexander Diamond, and he's in Briseño, 
Antioquia. I think the first time we've ever had anyone in from Briseño, Antioquia. He's a PhD candidate from the University of Texas at Austin, originally from Portland, Oregon. And we're going to find out what he's been doing for about two years in Briseño. So, Alex, Alex, can I say Alex? Uh, yes, please. <laughs> please, oh, Alex. Um, welcome on the Columbia Calling podcast. Thank you for the invitation, Richard. I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation. <laughs> Great. That's fantastic. Now, listen, I mean, you came to my attention some some months or years ago now, I, I can't remember, uh, when I saw a call for sort of contributions to help for a documentary to be filmed in, in that region, and I saw the pitch, and I, I threw a little bit of cash at it, um, Thank you. Feeling, feeling incredibly generous and benevolent at that moment, because it's not really something I'd do. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why some, something caught my attention. I'm, um, I'm honored. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, and then I lost your name. And I had to get in touch with the University of Austin, uh, University of Texas at Austin, the sort of sociology department, I think it is. Or the, and, That's right, yeah. And they didn't know a lot about it. And then they found you and then they put me back in touch with you. <laughs> so it was, we, we, and now we're talking. So there you go. But you, this documentary, that's why we're here. You've been there in Briseño. Tell us how, let's start with the very basics. How did you decide to do all this research in this very, very rural part of Antioquia, Colombia. I mean, Austin, Portland, Briseño, you know. So, yeah, that's that's a great question, uh, Richard. And um, Briseño is indeed a very remote village, uh, but it's also really key to Colombia's peace process. Um, So about five years ago, the, the Colombian government and the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC, signed this peace agreement that's supposed to put an end to a half-century civil war. Um, and at the time, I was living in Medellin, um, which is about five hours away from Briseño, uh, on uh, some dirt roads and, and some highways. But only about 50 um, miles, you know? <laughs> pro- probably, yeah, as, as the crow flies, probably, probably right around that. Um, or I should say that as the parrot flies for, okay. for context. Um, but yeah, so I, I was living in Colombia. I'd been living in Colombia for, for three years, uh, got really interested in Colombian politics. Um, and at the same time, decided to, to do a PhD in sociology and propose a research project about Colombia's peace process, but from the perspective of the communities that have really lived the conflict, mm-hmm. which which in Colombia has been rural areas like Briseño. Um, so Briseño specifically, it, it took me a little while to, to come to, but um, uh, part of the conflict, often identified as a motor of the conflict, is coca, uh, the plant that's uh, that provides the raw material for cocaine. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the peace agreement is a coca substitution program. And Briseño is actually the place in the country where the coca substitution program was launched, the pilot program. So it gets called the Peace Laboratory. um, And it's actually also the place that hosted the first collaboration between the FARC guerrillas and the Colombian government, which was a humanitarian demining program, uh, taking out landmines. Mm. So it's just this really key area for for the peace process. Um, And I guess that's how I became aware of it. Mm-hmm. I visited. It's beautiful. The people are friendly. Um, and here we are. Yeah. Uh, 
It's, I mean, it's, it sounds like the perfect place to study. And if you see it, it's like a peace laboratory. It isn't overrun with investigators or NGOs or anything. It hasn't become like sort of a, I don't know, I end up saying the word like sort of poverty safari or something. It's not become that. It, it's still a very remote town with reasonably low expectations of state involvement. It's it's a great question. I mean, so one of my academic questions is like, what is, you know, the entry of the state in a way that and and other institutions, NGOs, like you said, um, what does that mean to local lives? Uh, it has been overrun to some extent, a little less now with NGOs. Uh, you know, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime had an office here oh, wow. for for two years, three years um, as part of the, the substitution program. Um, investigators, researchers, not that many, uh, some who've actually come because of, because of me or through me, <laughs> but, uh, some journalists, but people who stay for just a few days or a yeah. couple weeks, uh, I mean, nobody has stayed for two years the way that, the way that I have. Um, so you, you've gone totally anti-Ocanio in two years. Um, I mean, that allows you to investigate I mean, in, entirely thoroughly, uh, proper uh, ethnographic and observational research. And so you t- you've taken this peace laboratory and you've got that question you said of sort of the state presence and uh, I guess effectiveness of the state there. Now we're five years on um, from the signing of the peace accord. Uh, what, what, I mean, you, you suggested in what you just said that the UNODC, the Office on Drugs and Violent Crime, has gone now. Uh, have have, That's right. have the has has it been sort of like being vacated by by these entities? What, what is going on, exact, for example, with the crop substitution, the coca substitution project? So that I mean that's that's a question that uh, in Briseño is of relevance to the to the whole country, because this is the first and this is the furthest in fact in Briseño the furthest that the coca substitution program has advanced, mm-hmm. um, and it's been tough. It's been really tough because this this is a municipality where the economy was coca, which which mm-hmm. is true of a lot of um, really rural outlying areas in Colombia. Um, and the coca economy brings in armed groups. There's violence behind it, but it's an agricultural economy, kind of like, you know, growing bananas or anything like that. It's a if, if you see a coca plant, it's it's almost surprising when you think of sort of the, the cultural weight of you know the white powder of cocaine. It's just light green leaves. Um, but that was the economy. Uh there was a tremendous hope within this village. I arrived here shortly after the, the substitution program was launched. But, you know, the president at the time, Juan Manuel Santos, arrived in a helicopter. <laughs> he promised the state is coming. <laughs> you know, literally, he said that. That's actually the title of an, an article I'm working on now. <laughs> Very good. Um, and, and the, yeah, there was this tremendous promise and hope that uh, there's a community that suffered a lot from violence mm-hmm. um, between sort of competing the, the guerrilla group, uh, the FARC, but also right-wing paramilitaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this hope that now, you know, we're going to have licit economies, the state is going to give all these resources, um, and, and just life is going to change completely. There are going to be roads, schools, um, and 
I mean, one one major thing that we can say is that the the substitution program, the what was promised, has not been lived up to. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's a few reasons for that, but the the change in government uh, to President Duque, who took power in 2018, I'm sure many of your listeners are aware. Um, Right wing Uribista uh, disciple of a very uh, bellicose, violent ex president of Colombia who was not interested in the peace process. Yeah, um, of course, he was. He was elected on that on that phrase almost that he was going to tear the document up into shreds. But so oh, I mean, there's a lot of sort of colliding worlds and economies there in, in Briseño. <laughs> So you're very close, I mean, as the crow or parrot, as you said, flies to Medellin, but you say it's dirt road. So first things first, there's no communication, really. And so people can't get their, you know, agricultural goods out to market. In, uh, that's, you know, a first complaint. So who who is making the money? Well, who earns money on that highly durable and easy, I think, crop at coca fields? Uh, and also... You've got the Cauca River and I think gold panning as well. Is there gold deposits around there? So you've got everything. But before we get into that a little bit, the the, the rival groups. You've got the FARC guerrillas. This is, I guess, they you know coming in from. Uh, you, you'll have to uh, tell us what kind of uh, year we're looking at with them in the region. And then you've got the paramilitary groups. And I suppose at one point they were probably the Aguilas Negras. And I suppose now, if there are a paramilitary group nearby, it's probably the Clan del Golfo, I don't, or you know, what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how have we seen this back and forth between different uh, different illegal groups there? Did it start with the FARC and then it went into others? Did the FARC then come back? Yeah, so quick, quick regional history. Um, we're talking about a pretty large uh, extension mm-hmm. uh, with few people. Now the population is 8,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the FARC first arrived in the territory in 1981, more or less, uh, as far as I've been able to tell people sometimes disagree on dates. <laughs> um, and what they found was, you know, that Briseño has like a, a village center, which is where I live, which is where I am now, uh, that at least had police. Um, but most of the outlying rural areas, which is where most people lived and live now, uh, just really didn't have an authority structure. Um, so when the FARC first arrived, it's it's kind of interesting how people, older people, obviously, in the village um, talk about them because, you know, there, there were problems with theft, for example, theft of, uh, you know, animals, uh, mules, um, cows. Uh, and and there wasn't sort of a state authority there protecting them. Um, so sort of in the, in those early years, the FARC are actually given a lot of uh, legitimacy by local populations. Um, in a mayor in the 1980s, someone who was mayor in the 1980s, told me you know it was the FARC who kept law and order for me. Um, so there's even an articulation. We you know we think of like an insurgent movement as overthrowing the state, but there's in some sense, an articulation with at least the local state. Uh, the dynamic, this is making it a bit too simple, but the, the, the dynamic changes tremendously in the late 1990s, uh, early 2000s, with the entry of uh, paramilitaries um, linked to the Auto Defensas Unidas de Colombia, the, the AUC. Um, and at the same time that they enter, uh, coca starts spreading through Briseño. 
um, people start cultivating coca. And sort of one one thing that is that has become very clear, uh, the, the paramilitaries in some cases drove the cultivation of coca, but the major factor behind people starting to cultivate coca here uh, was a tremendous drop in the price of coffee. Uh, this was a coffee growing region. Um, and in, you know, I can, I can point to particular families here where, uh, you know, a, a farmer was able to put 12 kids into post-secondary education, cultivating coffee, just producing a large amount of really high quality coffee. It was a stable economy. Um, there was, there, there are all these sort of global forces behind it. Um, there was something called the International Coffee Agreement, which protected coffee prices until 1989. That goes away. Uh, coffee becomes subject to the, the global market. Um, and by the end of the, the 1990s, the price of coffee has just dropped. It's a quarter of what it was before. It's dropped below the cost of production. Mm -hmm. um, and when this happens, sort of at the same time, people start bringing coca to Briseño. Uh, from other areas where, where they had traveled to to work in coca cultivation. Um, and, you know, coffee just is not, becomes not an option. I mean, people are literally spending more on fertilizer and the labor to pick it than, than, than what they're getting for the coffee they produce. Um, so coca starts spreading like wildfire. The, the paramilitaries arrive around the same time. They tell people, we'll buy this from you. They give people loans for like fertilizer, stuff like that, to buy seedlings. Um, they start buying coca. They start fighting the FARC. Uh, the FARC sort of organize their own buyers. They charge a tax. Uh, so suddenly you go from sort of one-armed group uh, that's relatively relaxed. It's punishing wrongdoers. It has at least some legitimacy with the local population um, to just this this period of violence and and local communities are caught in the midst of this violence um at the same time it's a period of economic prosperity because uh paramilitaries are literally bringing helicopters in with bundles of cash um and and you know they're doing it the the police are standing guard from them they're doing it in articulation with uh local police and military who are collaborating with them to fight the FARC and um and so the, the character of, of village life just changes overnight. Mm. It, this kind of, uh, I don't know what to say, this, this parallel, it's not even parallel because they're right together, but the, the behavior and relationship between the military and the police and the paramilitaries is so very interesting mm -hmm. because it was this week that that uh, uh, document was... Uh, released after 30 odd years uh, and it, by the Georgetown, I guess it's uh, well, George Washington files that they've got in and they start releasing. I can't remember the name of it, but it, it shows the general saying, you know, there was no, there's no need to, uh, there's no, there's no need to attack the paramilitaries as we see them mm -hmm. doing our job. You know, there's that kind of thing. And we know, I mean, we know that they've worked very much, uh, this is an. This has been an open secret in open secret, for, but the for document, decades. The document coming out was a pretty big one, and that's you know it's, it's good that it's out there for you know proper discussion now. But as you see, it say you know the, the helicopters come in. There's the military helping out. There's the police helping out. 
you know, this, this area is a tug of war. It's economically mm -hmm. viable then because of the coca crops. Previously, the, you know, the coffee, now the coca. And now what we're seeing, of course, is the gold mining too. And going, isn't there going to be a gold mine uh, struck soon? Uh, that's, that's an open question. I mean, there's, um, so I, I think that there's, there's a broader point to make about the peace process, which mm -hmm. is uh, Colombia's national government has been focused on extraction, whether petroleum, uh, there's a hydroelectric dam here, which is we'll you know, also a way of, <laughs> yeah, there's also a way of extracting natural resources, but mining, um, uh, this has been a, the focus of the, nat the national development plan uh, for a long time, in fact, in, in Colombia. Uh, but what, what we saw in, in Colombia was that large parts of the country were controlled by guerrilla groups, not just the FARC, but mostly mm -hmm. the FARC. Um, and they were preventing uh, resource extraction in areas under their control. So even in the lead up to the peace process, you have people like President Santos, uh, other members of his administration saying, you know, we're with this peace process, we're going to be able to access all these new oil fields. We're going to be able to mine in new areas. And we're going to finance the peace process through this mm -hmm. um, open pit peace. Uh, uh, a friend of mine <laughs> called it. In fact, <laughs> very good in a, in, a, in a wonderful article. But um, but yeah, so that Briseño is a great example of that because uh, their mining concessions were sold in the two thousands, early two thousands, under the Uribe government. Uh, to a Canadian company called Continental Gold. Mm -hmm. This area had a gold mine in the 1940s uh, called Berlin, uh, run by Canadians, not Germans. It was apparently very productive. There was a major landslide and it, it shut down. Um, there's huge amounts of gold in this territory and guerrilla presence just basically prevented this Canadian company from coming in to, to exploit it. Mm -hmm. um, the FARC disarm, peace process comes, and immediately, this Canadian company starts starts sending representatives here because they still uh, own the they still own the plot. They still own the concessions. Yeah, yeah. they don't they don't own the the land. Um, they own the the subsuelo, the, the you know the the, the, un, the underground earth. Yeah, yeah. I talk about these things in Spanish, not English. I'm sure there's. Me too. I understand exactly I'm, what I'm you're sure saying. There's, <laughs> there's actually a correct word for that. But, I'm sure um, there is a geological term. Uh, uh, but yes, yeah, so they own what's what's beneath, let's say. And so they came back as soon as the peace accord was signed. They came back. That's amazing. As soon as the FARC disarmed, immediately. Amazing, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and it's and it's an interesting, it's an interesting lesson. I mean, and, and it correlates with it's not just here. It's not just Briseño. We've seen the the rates of deforestation mm -hmm. just skyrocket in yeah. certain areas of Colombia that where the FARC previously prevented that. Yeah. Um, this is not to romanticize what the FARC did, but um, but it's it's a fact that Colombian elites saw and see the peace process as as a way of opening up space for for exploiting new resources. Yeah, I mean, I see it in the, in the you know they see the peace. The elites have seen the peace in this manner, and they've seen conflict in the same manner. There's always a way, isn't there? The, uh, whichever way the country goes, these guys are not losing money. Um, it's quite negative that, but it's it's what we see, and and you know, and, and unfortunately, it's a reality. And I don't want to say it's inherited from anywhere, but it's it's very much kept between these families and kept between these certain businesses. And 
But um, I mean, you're in Briseño, and mm -hmm. it's way out there, as we said. And you, alongside your alongside your uh, PhD thesis, your doctoral thesis, you've been putting together a documentary called "An Uncomfortable." piece and I, I can hear that's what we're going into with all of these different uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> different uh, angles coming in the uncomfortable piece is Briseño and what Briseño is living and all of the different elements um, tell us how the um, how the uh, documentary is coming along I mean when hopefully will we be able to see it well we're still we're still filming um the the pandemic delayed us a little bit uh and then there's some concerns about public order. So we're, we're in a process of, of filming, but the, actually it's, it's less than just a snapshot in time. The idea is to follow three families uh, through this transition, through this transformation in the territory. Um, so, you know, thinking of it as a, as a project that unfolds over a couple years, actually, uh, I, I think makes the project more interesting. Um, so I think the hope is to finish filming within a year and then okay. and then start editing. And start editing, get it out there. And so these three families, I know that from what I've read, one of them was a cocoa-growing family who've now substituted and mm -hmm. are growing cacao. Another family are, are selling their crops. And the third, I can't remember, uh, and I can't so all, notes. all three <laughs> families had had at least some coca. Okay, okay, and and had an experience of of working in that. Um, and they've all substituted. Every so one one thing about Briseño, Briseño has eight thousand people. Two thousand seven hundred families are in the substitution program. Wow. So if if you leave out like municipal employees and people who live in the, even if you don't live leave out people who live in the village center, you know, most people are directly connected nearly the vast majority of people are directly connected to the substitution program mm. um but yeah the sort of the the idea is to focus on on their daily lives their their livelihoods their aspirations for the future um and and they each have sort of different projects um yeah. you know one one family is engaging in uh agroecology mm -hmm. You know, organic farming, um, permaculture, it gets called it as well. Um, but, you know, very sort of environmental values and and they are commercializing goods themselves, um, which is in, in many ways, you know, they, they sell at these uh, campesino markets, um, which is a response in many ways to something we haven't mentioned, which is that uh, agricultural economies, uh, have just become incredibly difficult yeah. as a result of Colombian uh, economic policy mm -hmm. over the last 30 years, um, which gets called neoliberalism, but, but basically means just destroying protections for smallholding farmers. Mm -hmm. um, most recently, the free trade agreement with the U.S. Mm -hmm. and now traditional Colombian crops that were grown in this municipality, like corn mm -hmm. and beans. Uh, people are attempting to compete with this mass-produced American agricultural goods and the prices are just way too low. Yeah. Um, so that's one, one family's response is, is sort of in attempting to sell sort of these specialized organic goods. So they um, sort of end up at small, I would say, when you, when you talk about these campesino markets, I, there's one down the road from me every two weeks here in Bogota, but is that that kind of thing? 
It is, yeah. No, it's and and specifically, you know, one every month in in Medellin, which is a long a long journey. And and you know, they said they have particular clients. They they make wonderful organic coffee. Um, but it's not enough, is it? I mean, it's not this. This doesn't you know, sustain it, a big family, or it's they're an older couple who've uh, you know their kids are adults, and okay. um, it sustains them. But it's okay. it's a lot of work, and it's yeah. it's far from easy. And yeah. you know, they they grow. I, I was fortunate enough to to live with them for two months. They grow and eat organic food. They they eat nearly every or every nearly everything they eat. It they grow on their on their farm. Um, so it's, it's not an economy that requires a lot of cash. Um, but that's sort of one, one model of life. You know, the, the other two families are, are families with kids and, you know, that adds another element. Um, Everything changes with kids. (laughs) Everything changes. So, but Alex, tell me something though. I mean, you know, we've talked (laughs) about, you said there's 2,700 families involved in the coca substitution, plan but coca's still grown there right so it's uh this is a controversial question at the at the time of no i don't mind answering (laughs) at the at the time that the program was launched uh sort of the the reported un numbers were that there were like four hectares left and you know 500 something were were uprooted and the four that were left were just like abandoned plots okay so it's nearly, we can say that nearly everyone joined the program and voluntarily eliminated coca. Mm-hmm. Um, since I arrived in the municipality, which was six months after the program was launched, um, and you know now three and a half years ago, uh, the or nearly four years ago, um, People have been talking based on sort of the government failure to live up to the agreement. People have been talking about replanting. Mm. They talk about it all the time. Uh, there has been some replanting. Uh, it's it's somewhat limited. It's it's not reached the extent that it did before. But it seems to me like we're in a moment right now where where it is uh, coming up a little bit more. Not like before where sort of every hillside, you know, you turned and and there was, at least in some areas, there was mm-hmm. coca. It's, it's more hidden, smaller scale. Mm-hmm. Um, but people are, people are desperate. Yeah. You know, there aren't great economic options. Mm-hmm. But uh, you wouldn't say that any people are being coerced into cultivating coca once again? No. No, there's, okay. there's no coercion. The, I think previously there may have been some coercion in terms of the armed groups did not want people to give up their coca. Um, but it's not clear to me that there was, you know, really ever a coercion that you have to plant coca. Okay. All right. Well, we'll have to move on to uh, Ituango because, you know, Briseño is there. You've got the Cauca River, and I guess just on the other side of the river is Ituango, right? And, and even today, Ituango is a flashpoint for what is this, the post-conflict conflict. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, I guess Briseño obviously suffers as well from what is going on in Ituango, but being on the other side of the rivers, you know, there's a, there is a division there. Um, and of course, you've got the huge hydroelectric plant, uh, mm-hmm. Hydro Ituango, which has, 
tangled up many uh, uh, high-profile politician. Uh, I can we don't want to name names right now, but even presidential candidates <laughs> and so on. Um, yeah, and we don't really even know what's going on. Is it even? I mean, it seems like it was a huge white elephant in some respects. I mean, we're talking about thousands of people displaced for That's its right. construction, disappeared people for its for its construction. So, I mean, could you give us a little bit of a background on Ituango? Because you've been, I mean, you're right there. You're best uh, located to give us an idea of what, what is the situation with Ituango. Sure, yeah. Well, so to begin with, Idri Tuango, the, the dam, is uh, the, the machine house, Casa de Máquinas, is actually yeah. in Briseño. Oh, really? Yeah, it's, I mean, it got called Idri Tuango, but and actually people here have have moved though the project's been such a disaster i don't understand why they would want to change the name to to <laughs> hidro ituango briseño or something like that but yeah. um yeah the project is over the cauca river mm-hmm. which is the borderline between briseño and ituango you know it's it's between the two municipalities um ituango well maybe Maybe I'll talk about the the dam project first, and then get to okay. Ituango itself, because that adds a whole a whole <laughs> layer of complexity. Um, but yeah, as as you alluded to the the project, you know it's it's been in the works for thirty, well, forty forty years anyway. Um, and there was tremendous violence behind it, sort of to begin with. You know, the in the what's called the area of influence. I think there were fifteen massacres in the in a couple of years in the late 1990s, mm. um, it basically just the area became very strategic. Uh, those were paramilitary massacres, um, you know, the project itself and some of those specific massacres have been associated with, uh, you said we're not going to name names, but everybody <laughs> knows the name of, of Alvaro Uribe, yeah. ex, ex-president. That's well-documented. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so in specifically in Briseño, right before they're going to start construction, you know, there's it's the the Cauca River Valley was was an area of traditional guerrilla strength, mm-hmm. uh, two different fronts, both on the Ituango and the Briseño side. So there was this need to to move the guerrillas out of the project zone. You know, they did not support the project. Um, so you have the military enter in force around 2007 and. Um, there's this tremendous fighting which took over uh, sort of these these valley walls um, and specifically the community uh, that the documentary focuses on. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this time, you know, they pushed the guerrillas up the walls, but um, but the community, uh, what the guerrillas do in response is they put down landmines to stop the military advance. Mm-hmm. And the community becomes uh, becomes known as the most heavily mined area in, in Colombia. Mm. You know, I'm not sure if that's true or how they established that, um, but it's, I mean, it's it's true that to this day, there are huge areas where there are these signs saying you can't stray off the path because it's mined. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's, uh, you made a, a comment before that I, that I thought was very apt about how, you know, we have peace enabling mm-hmm. these extractive projects and previously it was violence. This is an example of that. Um, but that project is really the the start of Briseño going from this area that's not of much importance to anyone, just one of many, you know, huge parts of Colombia, these isolated rural areas that have limited, they have, 
maybe have had the the history of sort of state um, military presence at times, but very little social investment mm. and very little interest from Bogota or from Medellin or from other centers. Um, that project uh, is the start of uh, this this interest within within the state, within you know the international investors. This is a huge project. This is Colombia's largest hydroelectric dam. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it begins with violence that touches the community directly, um, and it. Uh, you mentioned gold panning. Um, there were all these river-based economies, primarily gold panning and fishing. Uh, and as part of building the dam, they basically just displace all the all the gold panners, mm-hmm. which was an economy that um, there were people who worked just as gold panners, but most people basically they they refer to the Cauca River as their patron. Uh, I guess patron, boss, yeah. something in between that provider uh, that when, you know, when they were short of cash, they could go down and, and pan for gold. Um, and in the in the months, you know, when when they weren't, uh, you know, Colombia doesn't really have s- seasons like uh, the U.S. or Europe, but there are rainy seasons. And in the non-planting seasons, mm-hmm. uh, drier seasons, those happen to be the, the seasons that it's also easiest to gold pan. So this is very seasonal. Um, these economies were destroyed by the building of the dam. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just sort of another way that it's that it's touched local lives and and sort of all throughout the territory. That's one thing that links Briseño and Ituango, mm-hmm. uh, which you asked about. Um, so there were tremendous social movements against the dam, but they they failed. This was a project that was had a lot of has a lot of money behind it. Yeah, I mean, it, it was going to happen or it was going to happen. When you see the list of names there, they're, they're not letting this not happen. Um, I find it fascinating to make reference, and it's something I've learned over the years being here in Colombia, and especially spending so much time in rural Colombia, the sort of high water season and low water season, like what you just said now, non-planting mm-hmm. season. I mean, it's, 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 that's how it goes, isn't it? That's how it is. It's not winter, it's not summer, but it's, it's when... <laughs> crops will be planted and when they yield and so on. I mean, that's the reality of it. Um, and I mean, and this is what you've taken into account, obviously, in your, in your documentary that the, the clips that are there on your website, you know, it's, this is a countryside uh, issue. This is, this is, I mean, we say campesinos. I usually, I don't want to ever call them, I don't want to say peasants, but that's the literal translation. But I just say mm-hmm. small farmers, you know, smallholder farmers, subsistence farmers almost. Uh, I, I, I don't know if you have a better term for that in all of your, of your writing. It's kind of hard because as soon as you see, you know, if a Colombian text is translated, it immediately says peasants. And that's like, well, there's a negative connotation to that. So, um but that's that's something I've thought and about a lot and wrestled yeah. with a lot, and I'm, I'm I think I'm using the word compass, you know, very intentionally. Yeah. Um, now there's a field of peasant studies which I think is actually quite uh, critical and intelligent. Um, so I don't know if the word is being resignified, but I I agree with your concern. Yeah, I, I do have a concern around it. So and now is we we know that the Hidro Ituango um, saga continues the, the mm-hmm. tragedy as well uh there have been all manner of uh, allegations or, or you know things proven that money was misspent and and so on and it's been a 
you know, for, as for everything, some you know corrupt uh, business practices. Um, and yet, Ituango and the area in which you are located now still seem to be, as well, a flashpoint of violence. I mean, if you read any Colombian newspaper or sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, wire service, we're always mm-hmm. seeing stuff about Ituango, or well, not Briseño so much, but I think Ituango or the or the region. And then uh, I'm just sort of curious about it because uh, wasn't there a huge displacement of families recently up there? Yeah, just a couple months ago. Um, I think the largest displacement in the history of Antioquia, which is you know crazy to happen in the the peace process era. I don't like yeah. the word post conflict, but no. for that reason, but post accord. Um, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. No, I mean Ituango has a number of of characteristics, you know, aside from the hydroelectric dam, which, which has brought a tremendous amount of violence to the region. Um, Ituango is a strategic corridor for, for drug smuggling um, up to Urawa, the, the Gulf of Urawa, which is um, a port and it's a port. Uh, you know, I think you, you mentioned the paramilitary group, the, they're called the Uraveños or the Clan del Golfo, which is the Gulf of Urawa. Um, so there's, you know, Ituango sort of becomes this national park mm-hmm. and there's sort of these paths that nobody pays attention to, uh, Parque Nacional Paramillo, these sort of mule paths that just go up to, uh, basically to, to these drug smuggling routes. Um, and there's also access sort of on the other side to Choco. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's been always really historically, um, Strategic mm-hmm. for so, for drug smuggling. Kind of a, a crossroads there, if you think of the Choco and then think of the sort of Caribbean and the Urawa, Urawa. And of course, it's a straight line as well, isn't it? If you go straight, if you're going straight up to Urawa. So That's right, yeah. Uh, uh, obviously, right now, the, the issue being reported is, is the, that of the migrants, Haitian, Cuban, and then from all over the rest of the world, trying to make their way up through Central America into, into uh, the United States. Um, so I don't, I mean, I, I worry about this because, again, you read about it, you think about it, and, and you, you talk a lot. Obviously, your work is very uh, linked to the, the peace process and this peace laboratory and, and, of course, viewing what's going on with the paramilitaries, viewing what's going on with the guerrillas, both of whom I believe are still very active in the area. Uh, I mean, how do you... How do you see it unfolding? This is a very big question for you. How do you mm-hmm. see? Well, let's start with the immediate future because we can't, obviously, with uh, you know the, the virus and everything else, we can't. We live in an era of uncertainty and insecurity. Um, but we, I mean, let's say the next two to five years. What do you expect to to occur in an area like Briseño, Antioquia? Well, Briseño is a special, it's a very special case because it really has been privileged uh, in the peace process. There is a FARC dissident guerrilla group here that rearmed. Um, you know, I think, I think to some extent I need, I, I know, I need tacit approval in order to be here. But the, the fact that there aren't or have only been very limited paramilitary presence uh, in this village is the only thing that, that lets me stay here. And many of the villages around it, like Ituango, have tremendous um, paramilitary presence and, and ongoing fighting. I mean, I think I think Colombia for a long time uh, 
centuries even has sort of these unresolved agrarian conflicts, um, inequalities, lack of opportunity. Um, and, you know, what, what we've seen is that the, I, the peace process had, was a tremendous, brought this tremendous hope. Uh, and I think Briseño is is testament to that. You know, people wanted to get rid of their coca. They wanted, you know, that's not a hundred percent true, but but in in general, there was this sort of desire for state power mm-hmm. to come in, investment, licit economies, no more of this violence. Um, rural populations have long been been caught in the middle. Um, but you know, we we talk about. You know, one, the failings of programs like the substitution program. We haven't mentioned uh, rural integral reform, which was another part of the peace records, accords, excuse me, um, which was supposed to bring sort of the infrastructure. You talked about the roads that uh, campesinos need to get their products to market. Um, there just aren't great options right now. Uh, there isn't the investment that's needed. Um and then on the other end of it, you know, you have uh, the the lure, if you want to call it that, of illicit economies like coca. And then you have these uh, these huge extractive mega projects that come in, or even smaller scale. You know, mining is an incredible driver of violence in Colombia, mm-hmm. both legal and illegal. You know, is is very linked to to paramilitarism. So when you ask, you know, what's in the future for for Briseño? Um, we, we mentioned, you know, Briseño is filled with gold. You know, there's this chance of, uh, now a Chinese company entering to exploit, to exploit the mine, uh, to set up mining again. I mean, I, I worry that, that that would lead to tremendous violence here. Um, I think that's a possibility in the next two to five years in Briseño. Um, I think that coca um, spreading again through the territory is a possibility. I, I fear, I hope it doesn't happen. Um, I have to say that also here among uh, many of my friends, you know, there are people with projects to, to take out their own, uh, their own brand of coffee, for example, and they want to build up like a coffee economy in Briseño. I think there's a potential for them to have success and actually, you know, offer some options for smallholding farmers, um, and for sort of rural development that actually is for rural people, for rural farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's a very dynamic and changing situation. I, I think it's, I would be reluctant to, to sort of make predictions about it. I think, you know, as, as you well know, there's uh, a presidential election coming up. Um, you know, Colombia has the possibility after being governed forever by sort of center to right-wing candidates. There's a possibility of a left-wing uh, candidate, Gustavo Petro, who's now leading in the polls. Um, you know, I, I think that would make a difference. I'm not sure what he would be able to do. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that, if that really answers your question. I have a lot of fear for this region, frankly. Yeah. I think the fear is enough. I think, yeah, I think we, we, again, it's uncertainty of, of what, may happen and what could happen so quickly two final sort of points questioning points type thing you've never got into trouble you've never had you know a threat upon your person there because it is a hot zone um i mean 
it's an, it's an interesting <laughs> it's an interesting question yeah well you know frankly frankly richard you you ask that that question and uh there are probably stories that would be better told not in a in a public setting but over a couple of beers in, in bogota or, or mompos uh <laughs> i will or if you come to briseño you know i i will say that um especially when i first came here uh i think it was really there there were and and there still are but sort of these decisions of you know who to talk to who to help who to ally yourself with uh in these communities you know armed armed groups and here it's the the guerrillas the farc dissidents um they're not that separate from the community and there aren't like necessarily clear lines of this person is in an armed group and this person isn't and yeah. uh and you know the the military here i will say that when in i haven't felt much threat at all when when i have thought that i was maybe screwing up i was worried about the military here mm-hmm. and that situation has uh has improved uh, since since that. i first arrived um I'm, i i am too <laughs> i'm glad to hear that i i would be you know i would be certainly concerned with all groups but uh, as well the military tell me one last thing and we talked you talked about the elections when mm-hmm. you talk to people obviously it's you know there is it is a key conversation what is your general feeling about who want i mean you know the voting pattern there will they vote far right or will they vote left or what are they looking for i i think this is a great question this is a great question actually for um a topic that i've come become very interested in uh voting in an area like briseño and i i can speak specifically to briseño i my suspicion is that this is no this is true all over rural, rural colombia and probably in a lot of cities too it's not necessarily a question of ideology mm-hmm. it is a question of forming relationships with powerful politicians who can then direct resources to you. So I will tell you very specifically and very quickly what's happening in this village right now because uh congressional elections are coming up in March. Yeah. Uh March of 2022. Um and then presidential elections are May 2023, I think. Mm-hmm. Maybe June 2023. Mm-hmm. Next year. Next um year. Oh no, 2022, right. 2022, May 2022. Uh yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We're getting confused. And then later in 2023, October 2023 are mayoral elections. Mm-hmm. So what you see in a village like this is moving towards the mayoral elections, you have people forming alliances. Mm-hmm. Right now in the village, uh sorry, I find this fascinating. So there's maybe much more detail than you were expecting. Go for it. Right now in the village you have three different alliances, three different groups forming uh they're going to support different candidates for the uh Senate and uh Cámara House of Representative elections that are happening in March uh they will support their candidates and they will show their strength by showing how many votes they quote unquote deliver mm-hmm. right and that allows them to establish relationships where later they will call on these people and I've seen this happen based on the last cycle uh for help with resources to bring resources in um so they show their strength but they also have to make the right alliance with people who will win mm-hmm. 
Um, so that begins with the congressional elections. And then for presidential elections, it's actually the, the same thing. Um, but in presidential elections, it's actually less important that the person win because the, the people who are actually going to run for president uh, are important figures in the party and can still help direct resources to a village like Briseño, even if they don't win. So the decision doesn't become ideological. And in fact, I was talking with someone about this last night who said, well, because Colombia will have two, um, two elections, two vueltas, they call them, mm-hmm. right? There's a runoff between the top two candidates, assuming nobody gets 50%. So maybe in the runoff, then they can vote conscience. But previously, the idea is that they, uh, they use these elections to campaign for powerful politicians, they may not like at all. Mm. And this is literally somebody who's who's planning a run um, for political office here who was telling me this last night, that he does not support the politician. He does not ideologically support the politician he's going to support, but they're going to try to bring in, they're going to try to bring in votes for that politician in order to establish a relationship with them, strengthen a relationship with them, and then later uh, use that as um, as a way to one show their strength to gain office, and then two eventually try to get resources directed to the municipality. Um, so this is actually how rural politics works on many different levels, and it's um, it's extended to the mayoral election. It's not it's not an ideological question. Not at all. Not at all. It's fascinating. And yes, I've seen this in, in rural Bolivar and, and Magdalena. Uh, not at all, because in fact, we had elections quite recently in a couple of the towns. But on, uh, very sadly, in the town of Margarita, so the next one over from Montpós, uh, the mayor died of COVID. And so there oh. had to be a special election. And oh, the back and forth uh, between the power brokers. Uh, in fact, the, the election has been has finished, the person has been nominated, but the power brokers behind the opposition are now appealing the decision. <laughs> you know, it's just, a, uh, it's going to go on, it's going to go on. But we could talk forever. Um, but I would like to say, uh, wow, I've got one last thing. I've got you On your video, you have a guy playing his guitar. This is mm-hmm. the final thing. Right at the beginning, he's playing his guitar and he's singing yes. a song about the government and so on else. And he's got a guitar strap on that looks distinctly like a rifle strap. Is it a rifle strap? No. No. Uh, okay. It looked not at like, all. It looked like it was like for a, you know for a no, big semi-automatic or something. <laughs> I'm I'm willing to share his name. He's a city councilman. His okay. name is Marinigio. Okay. It's uh, not a, he's he's incredibly talented. Really nice guy. Smart <laughs> guy. Yeah. All um, right. I yeah. No, okay. no nothing. I, I'm, I'm going to have to take a look at that footage. Yeah, do because then you zoom in on it again, because I was like, what is that? And then you zoomed in on it again, you focus on it. I was like, he's trying to make me look at that in the clip. He's trying to draw attention to it. No, anyway, I digress. Listen, anyone who wants to see the clips, I will put them on the Facebook page and, of course, on, on, on Twitter and so on. But you can go to Alex's uh, website, which is, uh, I've got it here, alexkdiamond.com. Yes? Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a lot of there's a lot of writing there, too. On, it's good. On I've, read, I've read a fair bit of it, uh, actually, in the last Thank few you. days. And, and very enjoyable, very easy to understand, which, of course, is, is, is key for what's going on in Colombia. So, listen, I, I wish you all the best in this project. And, of course, 
more than anything, stay safe out there, you know. Uh, and of course, don't get yourself or any of your, um, you know, your collaborators, uh, the people helping you with this research, in, in trouble, please. That's, that's all I really have to say. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the idea. No, thank you very much, Richard, for, for your kind words, um, for the invitation, for your time. This has been a very enjoyable conversation. Yeah, you know, that's the idea. The idea is to have a conversation that's informed and informative to the listeners. And I know they've enjoyed it because last week's show about leishmaniasis in the context of the Colombia's uh, conflict was has been incredibly popular. People do have an appetite for these more kind of offbeat stories. So uh, listen, everyone out there, thank you so much for tuning in. This has been episode 397 of the Columbia Calling podcast. Remember, you can support us for as little as $2 a month on our Patreon page. That's www patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling and, uh, you know, ensure our economic viability. That's really the, the issue here. And thank you again to Alex uh, Diamond, alexanderkdiamond.com, alexkdiamond.com, his website. Do check it out. And, of course, watch the clips and, and uh, you know, spur him into getting that documentary out sooner. <laughs> so thank you, Alex, for your time. Uh, I've been Richard McCall, and this has been Columbia Calling. Bye-bye. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.